I woke up one morning in college on a Saturday. It was the off season, so there was no football game to be played, so it was another off day. The next time we would be in would be for our grueling Monday morning workout. So what the coaches wanted us to do was to instead rest and get ready for Monday's workout. But I woke up hungry. It's like a, it wasn't a hunger, it was a specific craving. I don't know if you've experienced, experienced this before, but it's like that moment when you wake up, you know exactly what you want to eat. If it's not like chocolate chip pancakes with coconut sprinkles in it, your life is over. If Lucky Charms are not in the cereal box this morning, I might die. It's those type of mornings. Like I knew exactly what I wanted, but it was totally against what my coaches wanted me to do. You see, at the time, my coaches wanted me to drop some weight. I want to lose some weight so that, one, I could be a better athlete. So that the workout on Monday, I could perform better, become a stronger athlete, so that when game time came in the fall, I would help the team and hopefully help win. But my craving wasn't for good stuff, like the nutritionist said. Unfortunately, I, I love junk food a little too much. So what I did was I put on my sweats, put on my oversized t-shirt, went to my roommate's door, knocked on it, and before he can kill me for waking, up or him, waking him up early on a Saturday morning, I said these magical words to him in the form of a question, saying, coffee and donuts? Because that's the breakfast that I wanted. Because I didn't want nutrition in my life, I wanted joy and happiness through fluffy sugar and dough and frosting. That is what I wanted. And so we got in the car, we drove to our favorite donut shop that we liked in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we got our coffee, and instead of ordering like maybe one donut, just exercise some self-control, not three donuts what a normal person orders, and not five, no, I ordered 12 for me. He ordered 12 for himself, but just to make sure it washed down well, we ordered chocolate milk as, you know, just on top. And so I went back home, uh, back home, and it wasn't just like, oh, the smart thing to do, maybe eat these donuts over you know, a few days or whatever. No, we sat down on the couch, turned on ESPN, and we sat there and ate all the donuts. I ate all 12 donuts in one sitting. I even had the gall to look over at his box going, I kind of want another one. That's how much I craved that. Despite knowing that an hour later I would feel horrible, I have a raging headache because my body wanted actual nutrition, not sugar and powder. It wanted the proteins and fibrous carbs and good starchy carbs, not what my nutritionist said, empty calories that have no benefit for my body at all. I didn't care. I didn't care that later that afternoon I would go through a massive sugar crash because I'd be really high on sugar, but all of a sudden I'll crash real hard in the afternoon. And I still didn't care knowing that on Monday that workout was not going to be fun. Not only did I have to burn off all those calories that I, I took in, I had no beneficial energy that those donuts gave me. But I just wanted them. And it felt good eating them. They tasted delicious, all 12 of them, knowing that they didn't provide anything good for me. Craving the wrong thing made me miserable that day and later that week. And unfortunately, it wasn't the first or last time I did that. How are you doing? Not physically. Some of you are doing well. Some of you are not. Not 
how are you doing mentally? Because some of you are doing well and some of you are not doing so hot. How are you doing emotionally? No, not that. How are you doing spiritually? How is your prayer life talking to God? Is it alive and vibrant or is it non-existent? How is your Bible intake? How are you reading God's word? How are you listening to him speak to you through his word? Or is it just dry, monotonous? You might do it every day, but it's just, it doesn't seem like you're getting anything out of it. How is your worship? How is this time of fellowship? How was your small groups two weeks ago? How will your small groups be now? How are you doing spiritually? If you're miserable in any of those categories, my next question to all of us is, what are we craving? What are we taking in? Is it empty calories for our soul? Are we intaking nutritional value for our soul? What I mean is like, think of the music. What's the last few songs you listen to? Are they all donuts? Are they all empty calories? You listen to a fine secular song that's, you know, fine and clean. It's okay, that's good. But if you just, you know, eat 12 of those in a row, it's just empty calories. Are you listening to the music that builds your soul up to worship God? What about the last movie or show that you binge watched? Is it more empty calories? What about the YouTube influencer or TikTok influencer that you watch? Again, is it more empty calories or are they building your soul up to worship God? What about your friends? The ones that you Snapchat all day with, the ones that you text all day with, the ones that you complain about your classes with. Maybe about your parents too. Are your friends empty calories or do they build you up and fill your soul up to worship God? What do you crave for? What do we crave for? God using a text, a pilgrim text of a a person who's venturing to Jerusalem during one of the three festivals that they do. Using scripture and using this writer, he shows us what we need to crave for. It is quite obvious, but let's read it anyway. Turn, to your, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. Let's read together what God wants us to crave for. Not donuts, not empty calories, but what should we crave for? Let's look at verse 1. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. I hope you see it. I hope it's loud and clear. The one thing that we should be craving for, all humans should be craving for, and especially Christians, we ought to crave God above all other things. Once we do that, everything starts to line up. If I just craved the right foods in college, if I just desired the right thing, if I had cultivated a desire to eat the right food, the, the proteins, the, the veggies, the fruits, the right stuff, everything would line up. I would lose the weight. Not only that, I would have energy, energy to perform that workout. That workout would help build muscle, strengthen my joints and strengthen my ligaments so that I can perform better. And if I perform better on the field, my team can benefit and hopefully we win. If we crave God, everything begins to line up. That's what the psalmist, this writer, and what God is telling us, you and me right now, is that we need to crave him above all other things. Go back with me to verse number one. This is how lovely that word lovely is like beloved. How beloved, how amazing is your dwelling place? That word dwelling place is the same word they, can, they use to describe the tabernacle, the temple. So dwelling place, place means God's habitation, his presence, where he gets to be. It's a reminder of Eden and also a reminder of our future with God as Christians. So how beloved and amazing is your dwelling place, your personal place, place O Lord of hosts, and that, that word hosts, I want you to jot this down, also means armies. Other ways to translate it, the, the NACB and ASB says Lord of armies. So that's what the host means, Lord of the army. So it's like the president is also the commander in chief. This guy's in charge. He has authority and he has power. My soul longs this intense, shameless desire. It's so, it's so strong that he, he faints. He's exhausted from his desire. For what? What is he exhausted for? Is he exhausted to go back to Disneyland? Like some people are? They're fainting just to go back? No, he wants to be in his, the courts of the Lord. He wants to be in the personal presence of God. He, does, he wants to be there so bad that his heart and flesh sing for joy. It's like Buddy the Elf screaming out, Santa! That excitement. So it's not just a singing like, oh, this is pleasant. No, it's a yelling singing because they're so excited. They can't control, he cannot control how he wants, how desperately he wants to be in the presence of God. Why does he know this? Because he understands this, uh, this truth that even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest. Even the smallest creature finds a home in the temple of God. If this tiny creature, like Jesus talks about in Matthew 6, says, yeah, I take care of the sparrows. I feed these little animals. How much more will I feed you? That's kind of the same concept. These little creatures are just making their nests above the altar and the temple and the tabernacle. And these things are blessed. How much more are those a special creation? Mankind. How much more are we blessed to be in the presence of God? Blessed are those, in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell. That word blessed, have you ever thought about what the word means? What does blessed mean? Don't describe blessed without using the word blessed. It's like fortunate, highly favored, or another way, happy. 
It's the same concept on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who dwell. They live, they sit, inhabit, remain. Stay. Where? In the house of God, ever singing your praise. This guy, this writer, the son, the son of Korah or David himself, desperately wants to be with God. He understands how amazing it is and how amazing it will be to be in the presence of God. Just like what Pastor John talked about in the main service this last weekend. How amazing it will be in the future, in the future presence of God. But he just wants to be in the presence in the temple. He's hungry to be with God. He's dying to be with God. So point, put that down as point number one. Hunger to be with God. What does that look like? Well, it looks like my wife and I landing in a foreign land, getting out of the airport in Costa Rica for our honeymoon. Looking at the beautiful jungle, jungle landscape was not good enough. Driving in our van, seeing this beautiful coastline, not good enough. Being at the gate of the hotel, about to enter in, not good enough. We were dying to get there. Why? There's the beautiful coastline before? Don't care. There's beautiful jungle that I can explore? Don't care. I want to go to this all-inclusive resort that we reserve, thank you mom and dad, to spend a week here. Why? Because we studied this place. We were researching for months. Where do we want to spend our honeymoon? Where do we want to go? And we found this wonderful place, this all-inclusive resort, and we found out all the excursions that came with it, the zip lining, the quadding, what beach it was on, and what room that we were going to get to see that beautiful ocean view. We understood that any restaurant at the hotel was ours for the taking. I could order as much as I want, and I did. Refer back to the donut story. And I also knew that I had 24-7 room service coming my way. I could order french fries any time of the day. And yes, I did that, just to see if I could. And yes, I ate them all. But being near a beach that looked beautiful, driving around other places that looked awesome was not good enough because I knew where I was about to, was where I was about to stay. And Candace and I were hungry to be there. We were dying to be there. But the reason why we had this hunger is because we developed, we cultivated this hunger. And that's what you and I need to do. We need to cultivate this hunger. But how do we cultivate this hunger to be in the presence of God? the first thing we need to do is to sacrifice in order to gain. For my wife and I, we sacrifice some time and effort and energy to look into this beautiful hotel. That's really not the hard to do. But if you think of it, sacrificing some time to learn about your future as a Christian in the presence of God in the new earth is something worthwhile. Reading Revelation 21 and 22. Studying Randy Alcorn's book on heaven even re-listening to Pastor John's sermon. Those are all good things to help us remind us of our next life, how good it is. But just like the donuts, I had to sacrifice the donuts in order, and, and gain the healthy food, the real food, the real food that would benefit me. It still tastes good. It's amazing what we can do with chicken and veggies. It still tastes good. But we have to sacrifice in order to gain. Sometimes you need to sacrifice some sleep, some social media time some video game time, some friend time. And there's a big caveat with this one. Maybe some study homework time and sports time in order to gain 
God. Not just saying you're going to do something in order to gain him. No, you're just sacrificing time and to cultivate in, in garden your desire to be with him. You sacrifice some sleep so you can get up in the morning and read his word. You sacrifice some time in your homework just to make sure you know, have I intaken God through his, through his word? Have I even prayed to him? After that, then I'll do my homework. And the rest of your schedule is fine. Sometimes you've got to sacrifice some time with your friends to make sure you're cultivating your heart to desire and hunger for God. The next thing we need to understand is we need to trust God in his word. Sometimes it's hard. We don't see God right now. Jesus has already ascended to heaven. We're waiting for him for to come back. We have to trust that his spirit is here. And for the Christian, the spirit is in you because you have repented, because you have trusted in Christ. You have to trust that as you, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You don't draw near to God for your selfishness. No, you draw near to God so you can submit to him, so you can obey him, so you can live for him. You have to trust this promise that, yeah, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And lastly, we need to understand what this is. We need to understand what this Bible is. I think sometimes, unfortunately, that when we read this, we just read it as another book. We just read this as more words on a page. Do you believe Hebrews chapter 4? Do you believe that this is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword? That nothing is hidden from its sight. Nothing. None of us are hidden from this sight. Do you believe, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, that God breathed this word out? That's the Holy Spirit speaking to us right now when we read that word. Do you believe that? Yes, we need to understand the meaning. We need to understand the original audience, the original meaning of the text. But God uses that to help us understand how do we apply in, this, in the life now. How do we apply it with our friends, with our family, with our school, with COVID? You have to trust that this is the word of God. That God is speaking to you through this, through his word. Because once you understand that and you, start, you believe in that and cultivating that, you're going to want to read it, not just once, but maybe multiple times in the day. You want to meditate, it, meditate on it throughout the day. But you have to understand what this is. If you just see this as a book, your Bible reading will remain dry. But if you understand this is God talking to you through space and time to guide you through a life that is glorifying to him, you might have some of the deepest and richest time with God you'll ever have. But being hungry to dwell with God is not the full picture. It's like the first movie in a trilogy. In order to understand the whole story, we need to understand the last two parts. So for the next part, go back to verse 5 of Psalm 84. Verse 5. Blessed, remember, happy, fortunate, highly favored are those who do what? Whose strength is in you, is in God. Their strength, their power, their might, their, their stronghold, their security. And whose heart are the highways to Zion. Zion is being the place in the presence of God. It's a reminder of Eden in the past and a reminder of the new earth in the future. Blessed are those whose strength is in you because as they go through the valley of Baca. Now that is a weird word. I'll, I'll put it at that. Why that? 
Well, bakah in Hebrew means weeping. So if you reread it, it's through the valley of weeping. In this area around Jerusalem, where they think this valley is, it's a dry, arid place. It's like, the, it's like the desert that's outside of those mountains, the Saddleback Mountain that you just don't want to go. It's the dark lands, you know, of California, the hot, dry deserts as you're driving back from maybe Mammoth, Mammoth Mountain. Like, why, why, why is this here? There's no one here. Why is this road here? It's that type of valley. It's a dry wilderness of, of weeping. It's hard. But because they trust in God, be, but yeah, because their strength is in him, despite this valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs, of fountains, an abundance of water in a desert. Because the strength is in God, the early rain covers it with pools. This is a blessing from God. Despite the barrenness and the dryness of this land, there's still water, there's still life. And that's why he says they go from strength to strength. They go from life to life, refreshment to refreshment. Because despite the situation that he's in, even though he's in the valley of weeping, even though he's in this dry, arid place, his strength is in God. And he's able to go from strength to strength. And what happens as a result? The last line right there in verse 7. Each one appears before God in Zion. Each person, meaning he gets to the temple. Each person appears before God in Zion. But this person understood is that if he places strength in God, God would be able to carry him through the hardest of times. The saddest of times, the driest of times, the times where it's hot and unbearable, the, the, the world, the heat is just putting his pressure on you. Despite that, because the strength is in him, he can make it through. He'll be strength to strength. God will provide a life. He'll provide blessings to get it through. And right now in the season in 2020, that's something we need to hear. Am I right? I know a lot of you are in pain. I know a lot of you are you're in your valley of weeping. Even if you are happy as a clam right now, a valley is coming. And you need to survive on God's blessings. So put that as point number two. Survive on God's blessings. What this looks like is a man named Eric Liddell. He's one of my favorite missionaries of all time. He was an Olympic athlete, Olympic champion in the 1920s. But he's also, I think, most famous for being a missionary to China. He's been mentioned before in True North several times. But I remember reading of an account of a, of a fellow, of a peer, another missionary, who was with him in China. And they were there in China in the 30s. If you know your history, that's not a good place to be in China because the Chinese were not really in charge. Instead, the Empire of Japan invaded. If you know your history even better, you know that that's not a good thing. Unfortunately, the Japanese under the Japanese Empire were brutal. And Eric and his fellow missionaries in China became prisoners of war. And in their war camp, in their prison camp, they were beaten they're tortured and starved, many to death. But with this missionary, I was so blown away by this missionary's account of watching Eric Liddell because even though everyone else, even though everyone was suffering, everyone was in the valley of weeping then. Despite all of that, even though most people were sorry for the situation, Eric was joyful. When food, extra food was given, people would fight over it. 
But Eric was the first one to try to create peace. Even though they try to hoard all the food that they, they could because they're malnourished, they're starving. When he got his food, he didn't eat it. He gave it away. He'd find the, the most needy person in the camp, usually little kids or women. Actually, he, the, I think Douglas MacArthur, the, the general of the United States um, Army at the time, actually was able to negotiate, or sorry, Winston Churchill, excuse me, Winston Churchill was able to negotiate a prisoner exchange for Eric Liddell. Instead, he said, no, take this, have this pregnant woman go in my stead. I will stay. An opportunity to leave. And this missionary said he was so joyful. And it was convicting because he survived on the blessings of God. He understood what Jesus meant when, he, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He understood that the food that he is, is, de, is dependent on, that he's surviving on, isn't Physical food, no, it's food. Uh, the food is doing the will of, of God to accomplish God's work. That's why Eric, in the valley of weeping, was able to be joyful throughout it, going strength to strength during that time. How do we do that? How do we go through this valley well when trials hit us really hard in the face? It's like that pie right on the stage. I took a pie in the face. How do we get through the valley of weeping? Firstly, we, I think what Eric understood and what God understands is that why, we have to understand why trials exist in the first place. Why do trials exist? Peter gives us, tells us that trials exist to test the genuineness of our faith. Paul says that sometimes trials are given to us to help us in, to endure so that we can build character and that character will lead to hope and the hope in Christ. And then Paul also writes to the Corinthians saying, sometimes you are afflicted so that you can help others who are afflicted after you. When you get through a trial or going through a trial and someone's going through something similar, you can take them along. God can use you as a strength for someone to get through their valley of weeping. But we have to understand, sometimes God cranks up the heat in our lives. Sometimes the tests come a lot more. The homework becomes more piled up. Maybe your relationships become tense. Maybe you're just weighed down by depression and anxiety. Maybe you're just going through something that you can't explain. Take a step back. And pray to God and ask him, why are you taking me through this? For what purpose, what gain? Not in a bad and snotty way. Instead, in a way of genuine curiosity, say, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to coach me at? Because usually God takes us through trials to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ, who suffered way more than we could ever. So know why we go through valleys of weeping. But how do we get through them is we hold on to God's promises. We hold on, we memorize these promises so that when the time comes, when we are hit in the face by a two-by-four trial, we know that we can endure. Promises like God will give us rest if we trust in him. Promises that even though the world seems like it's overcoming us, Jesus has overcome the world. Promises that if you ask, seek, and knock, God will give it to you according to his will. Promises like, if you seek first the kingdom of God, I will give everything that you need. So do not be anxious about tomorrow. Or the promise that I love, Matthew 28, telling his disciples that I will be with you until the end of the age. 
that Christ, God, will be, a, be with us until either we're called to him or he comes back. And that's another promise, just like this weekend was preached on by Pastor John, the promise that Jesus is coming back and bringing his reign. So we can endure any political climate, any plague, any amount of homework. We can endure. Remember these promises, True North. Lastly, how do we get through this valley of weeping? We do not substitute anything for God. Nothing can take the place of God. No friend will be able to get you through that valley alone. No boyfriend or girlfriend will be able to get through that valley alone. Your grades, your, your smarts, your wisdom, and your wits will not be able to get, get you through that valley alone. Your strength, your athleticism will not, let you, it will not help you get through the valley alone. God can use those things, but God alone is the one that can get you through this valley. So whatever you are going through, turn to God for strength. Turn to God to survive. Once you start doing that, you just start to develop some trust with him. Once you do that more and more and more and see his faithfulness, despite our faithlessness, you're going to trust him more and more. Go back to verse 8 with me in Proverbs 84. Verse 8. O Lord of hosts. Again, what does that mean? Armies. O Lord of armies. The person who can intervene, who has the power to come and save. Hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Why Jacob? Because Jacob was given a promise, a promise to, uh, from God to him of a people, of a land, and of a king. That same promise that was given to Abraham. So a God who has power to intervene and a God who fulfills his promise, that's a person I want to turn to who has power and trustworthiness. Hear my prayer. Behold our shield, our protection. Look on the face of your anointed your king, your chosen one, your endowed one. He's talking about the king of Israel at the time, but here's the cool thing. That same Hebrew word is also described as Messiah. So as Christians, we look to one other king, the king, the king of kings, the king of kings who is, has all the power and he fulfills all the promises. Why does he want to turn to him? Because he understands that a day in his courts his personal presence is better a thousand elsewhere. Even eternal life on this earth is not good enough. Even if it's had 24 hours to be with God eternally, that's so much better than a thousand years elsewhere. Furthermore, he would be rather, be a do uh, uh, rather be a doorkeeper in the house, rather be a guard on the threshold of the palace. He'd rather be a person working the ticket booth at Disneyland, not even be able to go into Disneyland, rather than beware in the tents of wickedness. He'd rather just be a guardsman or even probably a beggar at the threshold of God's palace, of God's castle, than dwell in the tents of wickedness. To have every fleshly desire he wants, all the sex he wants, all the fame he wants, all the attention he wants, all the riches he wants. He would rather have God than any of this stuff on the earth. Why is that? Because God is a sun in verse 11. He's a light. He's a guide and a shield, our protection, our safety. He bestows, he hands down favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. 
O Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, blessed, happy, highly favored are those who do what? Trust. Trust in you. They place their confidence in, their security in, their dependence, their rest. They trust in you. Blessed are those who rest in Christ. Who rest in Christ to protect them. So put that down for point number three. Rest under God's protection. Rest under God's protection. Protection from what? The protection that you need protecting from, the protection that you need, is not what you may think it is. The protection that you and I need is from God. We need to be protected from God. To paint the picture fuller, we need protection from God because of us, because of our sin. God is going to justly punish all of our sin, specifically for what we have done. His wrath is coming for all of us, unless we trust in Christ. God coming down himself, dying on the cross, taking on the full wrath of God, and to prove that it was paid in full, rose from the dead three days later. That's what we rest in. That's what we rest under. That's what we trust in for protection. Maybe not the protection that maybe you want, but the protection that you need, the protection that we need. But what does it look like to rest? It looks like me on a chair laid back in my dentist's office. I need protection from myself. Even though I floss every day and brush every day, my wife can attest to that. Unfortunately, I neglected to go to the dentist. So here's your PR statement. Go to the dentist, please. I didn't get my cleanings for about three or four years. And as a result, there was some plaque that was developed underneath my gums that I can't get. So the dentist said, hey, you know, this might not affect you for a while. You might be fine, but in 15, 20 years when your tooth is loose because that plaque decayed and ate away the root of your tooth, you can say, hey, de- you know, hey doc, can you fix me? I can, no, I can pull it out and give you a fake one. So if you can take care of this now, it might save you a lot of pain later. I needed protection from me. But what did that look like? I mean, I had to come in two more times, lay back, open my mouth, and get like a four-foot syringe right in my mouth. It was like this long, but it seemed like four feet. Stabbed me, not just once, but several times in my mouth. Why? Because he hated me? No, because he wanted to numb me. <laughs> did it hurt? Yes. But did it hurt as much as him taking his tools and scraping, causing my gums to bleed? I saw the blood leaving that little tube. I had to spit my slive in. He was doing that for my protection. He caused me to bleed to protect me. He stuck a needle in my mouth and caused me pain. So that, that, that process of cleaning my teeth would be far less than what I should go through. What resting is, is just sitting there and following his instructions. Letting him stick that needle in my mouth. I could have gotten up and said, no, I'm, back. I'm good. One shot's good enough. I can't feel my lip anymore. I'm just going to walk out, okay? Hey, you, you got halfway done? I'm going to stop. Just stop, please. no. Resting is trusting in him. It's sometimes painful, but it is worth it. My teeth feel so clean right now. You have no idea. 
But how do we rest in him? First and foremost, we do not trust ourselves. Secondly, we don't trust anything else. We don't trust ourselves to get the outcome that we want or the outcome that we desire. Because as Proverbs 21 says, the horse is made ready for battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Meaning you gotta trust in God's sovereignty in this. You gotta trust God's hand in this. For your salvation, it's God alone. But for your sanctification, it's also God alone. So in order to get through this time of weeping that you might be in, or this time until the rest of your life, you need to trust in God alone, to rest in his, under his protection alone. But also you need to set as, a, set as a reminder that nothing else will satisfy. I could have tried to floss myself, gone on YouTube, tried to buy some stuff in the store just to avoid the dentist, but I knew the only person that can get the plaque out of my teeth was my dentist. So I had to turn to him and trust him, and he had to do all the work. Nothing will be able to satisfy to save you from your sins, but also your sins will not fully satisfy the pleasure that you want. You need to trust God at his word that he will fully give you, he'll give you full satisfaction by his definition of satisfaction. If you think about all the things that we enjoy, are, they're over quickly. Those 12 donuts went very quickly. But all the things that you want, that, that game, video game time, the, that relationship, the vacation, it eventually ends, right? It, it's over. And Ecclesiastes kind of uh, puts this point further, saying that life without God is fleeting. You can have, you can indulge yourself all you want, have as many donuts in life as you want. But guess what? It's going to end. You're going to die. You can try to live wisely and do all the life's hacks and try to skate through school easily because you're able to figure things out. But guess what? Not only school will end, but also you'll, you'll die again. Not only will you can work really hard and save a bunch of money and maybe put down money for a house a lot quicker than I can at 30 years old. But guess what? Eventually you might get the house, but eventually you'll, you'll die and someone else will own it. You might be able to find all the wisdom the world has, has to offer. Socrates, Plato, Sun Tzu, Marcus Aurelius. But they're all dead. And that wisdom you gain is worthless once you're dead. You might be trying to do life with God. I don't know if some of you are trying to do life without God. And sometimes as Christians, we might try to do life without God in our school, with our friends, how we interact with our family. But life without God is vanity. It's meaningless. Because everything eventually ends. There's only one eternal being, and that is God. Eternal being in the sense that he's the one that is before time, and he'll be the only one that's going to be through time. Our souls will be eternal. Yes, people will be eternally in hell and the people eternally in heaven. But there's only one eternal being that can dictate everything, who has a sovereign hand in anything. So why trust in anything here to give you protection, to give you satisfaction? Trust in the one who's overcome the world. Trust in the one who's created the world. Instead, rest under his protection alone. Trust in him. Find your strength in him and want to be with him. But it all begins with craving him, desiring him, wanting to be in his presence. This past Sunday, many of us were at the wedding of Dr. Robert Kelly Esquire 
is now future, not, not future, excuse me, now Sarah, formerly known as Bedrovic, Sarah Kelly, who are not here. They're in Orlando, in the land of freedom. But I remember this moment, my favorite moment of the wedding was right before Pastor Ron, who had all the power at the wedding, made them wait just a little longer. Despite a wonderful message given by Pastor Ron, despite them exchanging rings, despite them saying, I do, despite them having scripture read, despite all of this, they were still single people until Pastor Ron said, I pronounce you man and wife. And so he knew that, so he kind of smiled and smirked at them saying, you guys ready? And here's Sarah just shaking with excitement, waiting to marry her husband, and Rob is here smiling, crying, and sweating at the same time, just excited that their, their bodies were shaking because they craved to be with each other, and it was contagious. It was adorable. It made that moment when Pastor Rob finally said, I pronounce you man and wife, and they kiss for the first time as husband and wife. I mean, that moment sweeter. I mean, that moment when he presented them to us again, saying for the second time, I present to you, um, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Kelly. That, made, that was sweet. Then walking down the aisle was sweet. Eating hors d'oeuvres was sweet. Eating the dinner, listening to toast was sweet because they craved each other. And we clearly saw that. It made the moment enjoyable for them, but also for everyone that's around. But it all started with them wanting to be married, with each, married to each other desperately, longingly. Just imagine if they didn't, you know, they're like apathetic about it. I've been to many weddings. I think you're pretty, Sarah. I think you're handsome, Rob. Oh, I guess we can kiss now. Because, yeah. That was so lame. It would ruin the whole moment, the whole wedding day. But because they craved each other, everything else lined up. If we crave after God, our prayer life changes. Our reading time changes. Our fellowship changes. Our serving changes. Our obedience changes. We're submitting to the Spirit. We're allowing Him. We're following Him guiding us to do life the way we're supposed to do it here on earth until we come face-to-face to, face to Christ. The psalm rebukes any mediocre faith that we have. Nonchalant worship, nonchalant reading, nonchalant prayer. No, what this psalm does is say, you and I need to crave God above all other things. So let me ask you this. Actually, you should ask yourself this. What are you craving right now? What are you craving? Let's pray.